Today I'm talking to Alison Hsu, who illustrated the Gospel of Matthew for Little Ones. Alison, thanks for being with us today. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. So talk to me about your walk with the Lord, kind of how, how you came to this project in the ultimate sense. Are you a cradle Christian? I am not a cradle Christian. Um, I was actually raised in a secular household um, and I converted in my teens. Um, I mean, I actually didn't even know what a Christian was and I live in the Bible Belt. Um, I remember my first, um, I guess, awakening to what Christianity was, was actually in public school. Um, my art teacher was trying mm -hmm. to teach something and she said, hey, y'all, y'all, everybody's a Christian, right? And everybody raised their hand and I'm like, oh, sure, me too. <laughs> so yeah. I went back home and I asked my parents, I was like, what is a Christian? And then um, my my dad kind of explained a little bit. He had fallen away from, from his faith in adulthood, but he, he kind of told me what he thought it was. Um, and then my only other connection was my grandmother who lived in Asia and she would come visit in the summer. And um, uh, my nightly bedtime story, uh, she would she would tell Bible stories. I remember mm -hmm. the Tower of Babel being one of them. Um, and but you know, I just I just did whatever as a kid. I had zero interest um, in the faith. I had many ideas that were very contrary to the faith. Mm -hmm. um, then in my tweens, my my father reverted back to his faith, probably because of my grand grandmother. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I started going to church with him and, um, he wanted to put me through, um, RCIA for children. And, um, you know, I just started reading, um, I think it was father Lavisek's picture catechism mm -hmm. for kids. And it just spoke to me. I thought it was the truth. I, I didn't really have any questions. I just accepted it. I, you know, the more I talk about that story, the more, miraculous it is to me that I, I just accepted it on faith. Yeah. And, and then I, I was um, baptized and confirmed at the same time on Easter mm -hmm. Sunday when I was 13, I think. Huh. Yeah. And then um, after that, I just started practicing my faith and going to church and just trying to catch up with all the other cradle Catholics in the church. Mm -hmm. um, although I didn't have any Catholic friends in school, all of them were Protestant, so I really had to be on my toes in discussing the Catholic faith with them. Yeah. Yeah. And so through like high school, college, um, we just had a lot of apologetic type conversations. Um, oh, and I wanted to add, um, when I was growing up, I went to an ethnic parish. It was a Chinese Catholic parish. So everything was in Chinese oh, and um, I'm not, I'm not fluent at all. Mm -hmm. So um when I went to college and was on my own and I went to an English speaking parish, wow, a whole new world opened to me when I could understand yeah. the prayers and the homily and all that. So okay. that's kind of my walk. Interesting. So, so talk to me a little bit then about the importance of art in your growth in faith. That is an interesting question. I actually did not pay attention to art until I had okay. kids. I was more of a coming to the faith from a cerebral point, point of view. I guess I read a lot of books um, and articles online. But yeah, interesting. I just assumed because you, you, you were the illustrator for this, but also it sounds like 
with with kind of that language barrier at your family church that it I would have thought that that kind of the symbolism would have mattered more or the imagery what you could see at the church might have helped well no. there there wasn't a lot of art in the church it was a very mm -hmm. actually it was a mission parish um oh, okay because it the building was actually an old real estate building that they had converted and it was just a whole mm -hmm. bunch of a, a small group of families that started this yeah. mission and so i don't i don't think art was really in the budget okay yeah it's really interesting all right so then with that that's your that's your journey to kind of where you are now what what but what brought you to this project specifically what inspired you to do this what brought me to this project specifically was my friend sarah beth meyer okay uh, yeah we we actually met at the chinese catholic parish which is mm -hmm. funny um, uh, she, we, she was just another parishioner whom I, I shared a language with because we could speak English to each other. Mm -hmm. Um, and then when she moved out of town, uh, we kept in touch. And then, um, when COVID happened, um, mm -hmm. you know, there, there was a lot of stuff going on and we were just chatting every day and she's like, well, you know, this is the perfect time for us to really focus on what matters, focus on the essentials, faith is what's mm -hmm. essential. And um, at the time, I was just kind of doodling stuff, like drawing my kids and drawing whatever I got from the grocery store. And I would share these with Sarah. And she kind of liked just how I drew the everyday. And so, it, it, she, you know, she normally writes for um, uh, articles that are meant for adults. But mm -hmm. she was like, well, gosh, these, are, these pictures are kind of cute. You know, we could mm -hmm. maybe collaborate on writing a children's book. Yeah. And, and so that's that's kind of how it happened. Okay. I, I kind of like when I do arts or crafts to have it have a purpose rather than mm -hmm. just to keep it to myself in my sketchbook. Yeah. And and you certainly you started big. I mean, doing the gospel in this sort of medium that that would seem like a bit of an intimidating challenge to me. Um. Yeah. I mean definitely had some imposter syndrome at the beginning. I was like, Sarah, this is what I got. Um, you can take it or leave it. I, I don't know what you're going to think of it, but you're, yeah. you know, we went um, stanza by stanza. She would send me three and I would pick one and I'd be like, well, here's the first one. And then mm -hmm. I would take whatever criticism and fix what I could. So that's kind yeah. of how that came about. Okay. What, what do you, Talk to me about the importance of doing this with the gospel, of, of taking, like the gospel we think of as, it's a book, it's words, you know, you might hear it read aloud, but I think a lot of people don't naturally think of the gospel as something that, that can really be shared necessarily through image, but that's been so much part of our tradition. Go ahead and talk to me a little about that. Right, so, um, I mean, the gospels are so rich, right? That's how God speaks to us, and that's really where we find the place where like Jesus is actually quoted along with mm -hmm. his um, disciples. Um, you know, I, I read that a picture, we can, a picture says a thousand words. When we look at a picture, mm -hmm. I think we can process it in like, I forget, some thousandths of a millisecond or something. And so instead of reading, these pictures are really useful because it's such mm -hmm. an efficient um, processing that anyone can do, uh, whether... Yeah a child or someone who can't read. I mean, the church has commissioned sacred art throughout history in order to catechize. I think that's why a lot of churches do have a lot of 
art on their walls and the stained glass windows in order to convey these truths of the faith. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how have you, I'm sure you've been sharing this with your kids. How have they responded to the art, to the, to the poetry? How do, how do those reinforce each other in, in the sharing? Well, they were actually part, part of the development because they got to see it through. But um, I mean, it was kind of, I, so I homeschooled my kids when they were younger. And so mm -hmm. it was just kind of a continuation of the way that I like to share the Bible and the faith with them, which was kind of just sitting down with them, uh, reading it to them, and then having them or myself point out the pictures to see, you know, what, who is this? How do you know that's Jesus? How do you know this is St. Matthew? What is that ring around his head? Oh, it's a halo. It shows that he's mm -hmm. holy. Things like that. Yeah. Cool. And I'm, I'm assuming they gave you their stamp of approval, right? Yes. Uh, they, they were super excited about it. And then um, they wanted to write books of their own. And they started putting together their own drafts of books. And, and um, yeah, and, and they, they draw pictures all the time now. Because they just, they just thought it was cool what we were doing. Yeah. That's great. And I think, I think that the, the illustrations have been fairly positively received. You know, they were received well here. And I think they've been received fairly well by our readers. Talk to me about the importance of, of beauty in the proclamation of the gospel. Well, beauty, um, it kind of elevates us to, to something higher because beauty, I think, points us to God. And so mm -hmm. when we see something done well, when we see something beautiful, something that we can perceive with our senses, um, it can elevate our minds to higher goods. And hopefully, you know, looking at beautiful sacred art we can mm -hmm. elevate our minds to to god okay yeah and and i think i mean it, it does it also goes back to him as craftsman as well i think in a lot of ways that it's it's not just that that he's perfect but he makes things he he who is perfect isn't kind of just stuck off on his own going i'm perfect and i don't need the rest of you but he's making the rest of us with joy and and love even though we are these radic, you know, we we have fallen from where we were meant to be. We are these radically imperfect creatures, but still our Creator loves us, uh, and and the love sort of brings a beauty to it. Um, do you do you find anything like that in art? Of just if you love a subject, it makes it easier to do the art depicting it. Yes, I think so. I, I find so much more joy when I craft or I, mm -hmm. I make something that I love and enjoy. Um, it, it's interesting what you say about craftsmanship. Like um, when I first started painting a lot more um, and crafting more, it, mm -hmm. it kind of drew me to, I guess, us as um, being created by God, like we, we can't see the big picture. And so we just mm -hmm. have to kind of trust the messy process and uh, whatever doesn't go our way that in the end, um, the end product will be mm -hmm. satisfactory and perfect. I'm not saying that my art is perfect. I'm just saying that when you're creating art, there's a period where it just looks wrong and you just have mm -hmm. to trust the process through the end. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and that it is, I mean, it's not just you, it's not just coming from you. There, there's, there's an element of inspiration and sort of a, a givenness, especially when you're doing a, a subject matter like this, I would think. Yes. And, and also, I, whenever, for most of the, 
the pictures in the Gospel of Matthew, um, I was also trying not to reinvent the wheel because I knew mm-hmm. that the church has commissioned so much sacred art already. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so some of the Bible series I already knew, such as Car- Caravaggio's Calling of St. Matthew, um, yeah. that one I, I drew inspiration from. And mm-hmm. I just kind of took the main characters from it and some of the ways that he depicted that story um, to convey mm-hmm. it in a, in a simpler way for children. Yeah, and I think that's something that a lot of people who aren't Christian, aren't Catholic, don't really understand, which is that even though on the one hand, every generation of artists is original, on the other hand, a lot of that originality comes by being so rooted in the tradition. Um, C.S. Lewis had that great thing about, if you want to be truly original, tell the truth. And by telling the truth, you will you will be unique. But if you set out to be unique, and that's your goal, you're going to be boringly the same as everyone else trying to be unique, which I've always thought just a fascinating point. Yeah, so I, yeah, and I think that's exactly right. Um, when you build on tradition in our um, ancestry, mm-hmm. in our Catholic roots, then you can probably build something greater. Yeah, and, and I think that you did that quite well. I th- um, and it, it's, it's, it is always interesting to, to just kind of hear, you can hear a thousand different evangelists talking about the same Bible story but all of those talks are going to be different. They're going to be pulling out different emphases. They're going to have a different life experience that kind of gives you a different lens on the same story. The, one of the wonders of the gospel is it's still applicable. I mean, this was 2,000 years ago. Almost everything else that's 2,000 years old isn't particularly relevant, and yet the gospel remains perennial. Yes, and yeah, it's amazing that the gospel can speak to all walks of life of, mm-hmm. of anybody reading it. it. It doesn't matter if if you're a child or somebody off on the other side of the world or someone who, who mm-hmm. is on a podcast, on a computer. Yeah. So what what other, you, you worked from the, the artistic tradition of the church. You worked from some of the, the forms and the way that things have been depicted in the past. What, what else did you do theologically, any kind of the reading or the research to make sure that, that you were accurately conveying the theology? Well, um, if you look back to, to a lot of sacred art, they, they put the, the historical figures, um, they dress them within the culture of their time, kind of mm-hmm. like, um, I'm trying to think of this, this could be, but you know, they're in European clothes, but obviously they, they weren't, weren't back then. Um, and so I tried to look up um, for some of the depictions I had, like what the actual tools or clothing they would have back then. Sarah and I wanted to make it a little bit more accurate to that time when, when I was illustrating. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Listening, listening to, listening to the history, listening to the word itself, listening to how they had lived versus I think one of the, one of the bad habits that kind of too many storytellers have had in the last century or so is, is we kept on trying to make the book, take the gospel and put it in the 1970s when there's, there's a richness in the history in that actual first century Palestine in what was, what was there at the time that I think some of the attempts at relevance kind of didn't quite, didn't quite accommodate, didn't quite deal with. So talk to me then, you, you personally, you personally, when you come to devotion, when you come to faith, what piece of art really has either unveiled the gospel to you or do you especially have close to your heart as you pray? 
Um, the one painting that really speaks to me is The Calming of the Sea by Rembrandt. Um, I, I think it was one of the first um, sacred paintings that I saw um, that had someone interpreted for me. So it's really stuck in my mind. It's actually also my middle child's uh, most favorite Bible story. But um, oh, cool. are you familiar with this painting? I might have seen it. I'm not, not really. I might have seen it at some point, but okay. no. Well, you know, it's just like in the Bible story. Stormy uh -huh. night, very stormy night. They're in a fishing boat. There's crazy waves going around it. And Jesus is in a boat with his 12 uh, apostles and one other guy. Um, and they they are just not having it. it this boat is going to capsize. And so on the top of the boat, uh, so in the picture on the top left-hand side, you can see the sun kind of coming out. But then... Mm -hmm. On the boat, there are people with their backs um, to the light, so they don't see that the storm is going to end soon. And they are just doing their best to try to, you know, pull on the sails and try to make sure this boat doesn't sink. So they're freaking out. At the other part of the boat, um, you see people looking kind of ill, like nauseous, because they, they think this is going to be the end for them. Um, in the center is Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he's looking very calm. And then the only calm people that you see are the, the people focusing on Jesus. And I thought yeah. that that's a really good lesson for life, actually. And then the, the, the 13th person, the 14th person on the boat is Rembrandt. He painted mm -hmm. himself and he's staring at you, the audience, wondering, you know, where do you see yourself in this painting? That's interesting. Fourth wall break in a painting. Who'd have thought? Yeah. I like it. I like it. You should, you should look at the painting sometime. Well, and that that really goes very much to the heart of Faustina and Divine Mercy as well as trust. Trust is kind of the heart of the gospel, and the image is given to us so that we can keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And there are some incredible stories that Father Seraphim and Father Kaz would share about the image spreading in Nazi-occupied Poland and Communist-occupied Poland. And one of the Marians, I believe, had a miraculous escape from one of the roundups by the Nazis because he'd gone back to get his copy of the image and they'd forgot him and just left. And he was he was able to escape that way. Um, another another example of the power of art. Um, and I and I, I wonder as well, you mentioned before we started about your background in medicine. How yes. has that played a role I mean, medicine itself is sort of a study of the greatest masterwork of the image and likeness of God, of the human body. Talk to me about how that's impacted you as an artist and as a Catholic. That's an interesting question, Chris. I actually haven't thought too much about that. Um, I do think through medicine, um, I have seen, I guess, a broader, um, a broader sample of humanity, maybe, just of... Mm -hmm all the ways that people are afflicted or can suffer and where people come from. And it's just, I guess, kind of opened my eyes to, to what is out there in the world and the people that, that need our prayers and need our help. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if I mentioned this, but I did pediatrics before. And so I also have a lot of experience approaching and trying to help um, kids who are sick and then mm -hmm their parents who are distressed that their kids are sick. Yeah. Um, and so in terms of how it relates to my faith, um, I mean, there are a lot of bioethical questions that come up. And mm -hmm. so a lot of it 
also was um, trust. I, w- I would go to work every morning um, praying to God, delegating my day to God um, to help me to make the, the right choices for my patients. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and kind of what you're describing of the, the parents of the sick child is, is a great metaphor, again, for God's work with sending Jesus, that here's humanity, whom he meant to be children, his adopted children, sick, and Christ came for the sick. Christ is the good physician and all that. And so it, it's an interesting kind of metaphor to my mind of just the, the, your, your work patterning after God's own work. And then you're coming to do this this particular set of illustrations for the gospel. Yeah, and um, when I first went into medicine, I I actually wanted um, you know my job, my occupation, you could say vocation, to be kind of physically helping people because I also really really enjoyed um, studying the sciences in school, and so mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to combine that um, yeah. combine my desire to help people with my interest in the sciences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that certainly what brings a lot of people to med, or perhaps the the best, maybe the best doctors and nurses and all that to medicine, is that it's not just sort of the scientific interest; it is that that concern for the other person. And really, I think that's a good that's a good example. I mean, that's really what we do with the medicine of mercy, with the message of mercy, with the gospel of you're bringing the remedy to a world. That, that needs that badly, continuing Christ's mission and, and sort of then, I guess we're all assistants, the divine physician in a way. Absolutely. I mean, don't they say the church is a hospital for the yeah. sick? And so, so you're not called to be perfect and healthy, but um, everybody who has an ailment or is sick is welcome to the hospital. Yeah, we're all on the road and the saints are doing pretty well and helping the rest of us at the same time. <laughs> So talk to me then, I think that a lot of the parents who, a lot of, it will be a lot of parents who pick this up. It will be godparents, it'll be families getting it for, for their kids. Talk to me about how you would, you as a mom would use a book like this with your kids. Well, um, I would definitely um, use it, I would, I would sit my kids down and I would, you know, have them cuddle up in my lap and I would read it to them. Um, we, we could read the words together and then I would ask them what they thought about the picture, um, how it relates to the words mm-hmm. in, in the stanzas. Um, that's how I would use it. And then I would, you know, ask them what they think. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is this a, is this a read it in one sitting sort of book or is this something that should be spaced out? I think it depends on the child. Um, mm-hmm. I think the book could easily take more than 15, 20 minutes if you were reading it quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for the child to really digest um, the message in there, maybe a, a few pages at a time, maybe a series over a week for bedtime stories. Um, okay. And for those that like to do projects at home with their kids, you could even like create projects out of some of the, the stanzas in the book. Um, like, like sometimes when I would read to my kids, if say there was a book about blueberries, we would mm-hmm. you know, make blueberry pie on the side. I should probably make this comment more relevant to the Gospel of Matthew. <laughs> um, I mean, I would take my kids actually when they were younger to the art museum, and we would look at um, the different um, depictions of the gospel stories that we had read together. 
But I mean, just from this um, page five about walking by the sea and the fishermen, maybe we could we could do a craft about um, fish and how we were called to be fishers of men. But mm -hmm. you know, do a little craft on fish. And maybe have a fish dinner afterwards. Yes. That's cool. Okay. Now talk to me about you you said that you had come at the faith kind of cerebrally, so I'm sure that you've you've done your reading of the popes and the saints and that sort of thing. Are there any quotes from popes or saints that have helped kind of inspire your work your as an illustrator of the gospel? Well, um there is this one quote by um Saint Pope John Paul II that I like. It's it's mm -hmm. pretty brief too. Um he said in order to communicate the message entrusted to her by Christ, the church needs art. So yeah. art is still relevant today, um, even though people can read now. Um, just it's, it's a different way of processing mm -hmm. the gospel message, I think, to have it in different, um, yeah. different forms. Well, it's interesting. Uh, the popes of my lifetime, John Paul II, Benedict, and Francis. And it's interesting that you raise that because John Paul was an actor. So he was deeply immersed in artistic endeavors, the theater, that sort of thing. Benedict was a, is, was a profoundly, apparently a really good musician, excellent pianist. Oh, um, I didn't know Very that. fond of Mozart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and could play all sorts of things. His brother was a, is a choir director. Um, and then Francis would, his version of a vacation wasn't to go anywhere. He would just stay home and he'd read literature. And it didn't seem to really matter where from. He just kind of worked his way through the classics repeatedly over the course of his life, which you can really see in the way he speaks and the way that, that he kind of addresses topics. There's a very literary sort of quality to it. Um, but yeah, that that profound sort of embrace of art by the church goes goes so far back. And we have such riches along those lines. And John Paul was, was one of the greats to just, I think, he was the one, I think, who started that tradition of a letter to artists. I'm not sure if that had predated him or if that was a, a new thing by him. I like that quote. Um, but let me play devil's advocate for a moment. Okay. Is there still a place for children's book and art for kids in an age of iPads, iPhones, and all the other distractions? Yes, absolutely. And I say that as a mom and a pediatrician. Um, mm -hmm. We, we don't like excessive screen time for kids. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's better that they have something physical that they can thumb through. There's just something about like a physical book that's very different from a computer screen and the, in the way that we process things. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, for my own kids, I realized that they behaved a lot better also when they didn't mm -hmm. have a screen in front of them. And Quite honestly, we went cold turkey off off the gadgets when I, I lost the charger and I and I didn't know any of the passwords. And, huh. you know, they they were much well behaved and were able to absorb their studies a lot better after that. Yeah. And, and plus, when, you know, they're on a screen, mm -hmm. they're kind of so I have three kids. They're more socially isolated from each other versus if they're reading something together or doing mm -hmm. a project together. I, I just think it's better for kids. That's interesting. Not be on screens all the time. And do you, would you encourage, I mean, you'd said, you'd said doing a craft, would you encourage them to kind of do their own versions of the illustrations? Oh, or yeah. Yes, take the stanzas I, that you didn't, yeah. Yeah, that's a really great idea. I hadn't even thought of um, asking 
my own kids to do that. But yeah, but they, that's great because then they have to read it and then they have to process it themselves. And, and then you get to see, or I would get to see their expression of what, what they've processed from that gospel. Yeah. And art begets art. Yeah. I mean, we see that across, across the history of art. Huh. Now what, what, why did you choose watercolor? Why out of all the possible ways to paint or the mediums, why did you choose watercolor? Um, to be honest with you, that's, that's what Sarah Beth Meyer preferred. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I'm actually, um, I was more comfortable in the other mediums, but for some reason when I did my daily sketches, maybe because my watercolor palette is very, very portable. It's just like one thing that I can carry around. It was easy to sketch with it. And so yeah. that was kind of the style that she saw every day, maybe multiple times a day. So that's that's how we ended up picking watercolor. Um, the other medium that I used along with that was um, the ink pen. Mm-hmm. And um, so I used those two to, to illustrate the Gospel of Matthew for little ones. Okay. And and it's a very distinctive style. It's a lovely, it's a very effective style for a kid's book, I think. Um, how did your studies in anatomy kind of guide any of that? Well, I mean, I tried to make them look Kind of realistic in proportions if if that's what yeah. you mean <laughs> like I, well, I, mean, they... I can see yeah it's it's an interesting combination of both it's it's sort of an abstract but it's also very grounded in kind of in physicality yeah i wanted to make sure that um you know arms were where they were supposed to be in the proportions mm-hmm. of their forearm and arm you know were were kind of human-like mm-hmm. um and actually the style was uh the way that i used to draw buildings so i I used to draw church buildings and cathedrals for like church auctions and stuff. And so um, that that's a style called urban sketching. I, I kind of took that and then I applied it to, to drawing the characters. And so I would mm-hmm. sketch in the same way, but then I would make the face a little bit more simplified and inviting for the kids. Mm-hmm. Now, and you guys are still in, the, like you said, in the Bible Belt, in Texas and all that. How has this been received down there? You know, I have been overwhelmed with the love uh, from my home parish and then also from some of the neighboring parishes that I visited. So it's it's been really good. Okay. Has there been any kind of question of, like, Protestants aren't quite sure about a book by Catholics or Catholics think this is too Protestant a project? I have not heard that Catholics thought it was too Protestant of a project. Good. I also have yet to ask my Protestant friends what they think, so I should yeah. really do that. Okay. Yeah, I was. I had spoken to Sarah Beth Meyer a little bit ago, and and she had she had been saying that she was getting some pretty good feedback actually from I, I think uh, folk who I think would call themselves kind of Bible Christians or Bible believers that sort of thing, and that it had been kind of crossing those lines pretty effectively, which I found very encouraging. Is that? Have have things become more open in the Bible Belt than perhaps they once were in terms of Catholic Protestant conversation and cross cross fertilization of this sort of project? Um, I would think that things are better as long as I guess you're they're open to a conversation about mm-hmm. um, you know the similarities between Catholics and Protestants. I mean, I um, I I do have a lot of Protestant friends that I do talk about the faith with, and we we obviously have a lot of commonalities. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but like all things that are controversial, I think if you have a relationship with a person, then, then you can have a very yeah. good dialogue about these kinds of things. That's a really interesting point. That's a really important point. I think one that Pope Benedict made a lot. Talk a bit about that connection of love and truth. I think I think we all make a lot of people tend to make the mistake. I think of either trying to well, I'm not going to say something that might be controversial. We 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 have to love them, or others going. I don't care if it offends them. We have to speak the truth. Talk to me about that connection of love and truth. Right. So, um, what's that Bible verse like? If you speak the truth but you don't have love, you're basically a resounding gong. So, um, but, but yeah, like you said, we, we can't really hammer people with the truth without, they're not going to accept that they're, it's mm -hmm. going to be seen as judgmental, but then once the other person knows that you love them and you have a relationship with them, um, conversations are a lot easier to have, even about controversial things, because they know that you're not, I guess you're not coming at it to try to educate them and that's your mm -hmm. only purpose but it's it's yeah it's part of the i guess relationship dynamic more so you only care about convert numbers you don't care about the convert right exactly yeah yeah that's such an important point and one that i think i think somehow we really lost sight of in the last hundred years and by we i think i'm talking about kind of american christians and to a certain extent, the people outside the church, I think, assuming that all evangelical efforts are just about numbers or just about uh, power and control of, of trying to bring people into your church membership and the rest of it, without really understanding or, or encountering kind of that, as best we know, we Christians know, we have this incredible treasure. And we have an obligation to make that treasure available to those who don't have the treasure. Um, and so it's a matter of, as you said, sharing and love and care, not imposition or domination or power or anything like that. And community. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, did you say community? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, when people feel loved and they're in community, um, they will have more of a listening ear for, for what you might have to say. And of course, we're approaching them with the faith out of love also, we want them mm -hmm. to have an encounter with Jesus and just see the goodness in the church. Yeah, and, and that's the big, and it begins at home. Um, it's, it's, it's a sharing that isn't just add extra, but as you guys have done with the book, very much add intra, very much around kind of the fireplace or on the, on the family couch to just share this with the kids. Um, as, as sort of the first evangelization that parents do, I guess. Every parent ought to be an evangelizer then. Yeah, we're the first uh, teachers, or we're, we're the domestic church, and we're mm. going to be, um, I guess, the, the primary educators of the faith to our children. And so I think mm. the best way of doing that is kind of living it out and integrating it into your life rather than an add-on, because if it's going to be an add-on, then that would be difficult to talk about with people as well. So let me play devil's advocate again. There are parents these days who are very proud of, oh, I don't impose anything on my kids. You know, they'll make up their mind when they're 18 or whatever. We're not, we're not going to force anything. How would you answer that? How would I answer about not wanting to impose a faith in our kids? Well, I mean, we all want what's best for our children. Um, and as parents, 
it's our job to raise our children and to discipline them so they can be functioning independent adults. And part of um, wanting the best for our kids is also their spiritual health, their spiritual growth. And if I don't give that to them and I let them pick at the age of 18, they've missed out on an entire life with me that we could have had in the domestic church. But that's what I'm thinking. Like, wow, why, why should we hold back on that when we, um, who are more mature in our faith, can provide that and have them live um, in the domestic church with us rather than, you know, pushing that off till later for them to independently yeah. find by themselves. Yeah, you want to share the treasure. You don't want to deny them it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's an odd. I think I think it's probably a reaction to kind of a generation that was far more about these are the parameters and you must fall within the parameters. So yes, we are going to church and yes, we are the rest of it, even while the parents weren't necessarily living the faith the rest of the week. Whereas, if the parents are serious trying to be serious you know we're all practicing catholics we're not perfect catholics but if the parents are trying to live the faith then it is it isn't just an imposition it is a sharing of something that the parent themselves has discovered and is drawing great fruit from then i guess right right and i and i think that comes back to the relationship thing um like it's important to have a relationship with your kids so you can talk about the faith and they're watching you all the time. So they'll see if what you're doing is not matching up with what you're teaching them about the faith. Yeah. Which, which does, again, doesn't demand perfection, but at least that you're trying, they see the effort, they see the trying, they see you truly believe it even, but it's better than we are. So it's worth it. Right. Right. And so when, when I tell them to do something, I, I sure better try to make sure that I'm doing it myself so they can't call me out on it. Do you have a favorite one of your illustrations in the book, or do you have a favorite um, part of the gospel, the stanzas, or to share with your kids? Um, I think my favorite illustration is um, the, the one the one where um, Peter is trying to walk on water. Um, It's on page 14. Um, I I think I'm just drawn to to waterscapes. And um, I just, it's another story about faith, I guess, and being focused on Christ. And here we see Peter got a little scared, so he started sinking. I think my favorite of yours is the Star of Bethlehem. Just there's something haunting about those colors and and the way that the wise men are, are just beginning to enter the frame on that side of the... You just capture the, the, the distance they traveled so well with that. Um, and in order to see these, people are going to have to go to Shop Mercy and pick up a copy of the Gospel of Matthew for Little Ones, written by Sarah Beth Meyer and illustrated by Allison Sue. Allison, thanks so much for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. To order The Gospel of Matthew for Little Ones, written by Sarah Beth Meyer and illustrated by Allison Sue, please visit shopmercy.org. This has been Sparks of Mercy. Thanks for listening. Pray for me. I'll pray for you. Jesus, I trust in you. I invite you to listen to more shows brought to you by the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content 
which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. Simply visit divinemercyplus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's divinemercyplus.org. Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily Masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Thank you.